0: Have your Bibles in front of of you. Could you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and to verse 15. And we're going to consider for a moment just now the first glimpse of God's plan. The first glimpse of God's plan. So let me begin by just reading verse 15. Again. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now I'm uh, not really a man for my TV game shows. I'm not really a kind of deal or no deal type person but i have to confess uh, to quite liking that old favorite who wants to be a millionaire so here's a question for you now it's a rhetorical question so don't feel that you that you have to shout out an answer but let's just say that it's the million pound question and no before you ask no you don't have any lifelines left so if you are asked the question where in the Bible? is the first mention of God's plan of salvation. What would you respond? Where would you look? Would you, would you go to Matthew's account, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, for example, to where Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Or... Instead, would you perhaps turn to the to the Old Testament and to where God says to Abraham, "I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you." well this morning um, in our uh, time together, our attention is going to be on what Christians throughout the centuries and um, from the very first early church fathers, right through to the likes of uh, Luther and Calvin and beyond, to what these Christians referred to as the protevangelium, the protevangelium, which translated means the first good news, the first instance of the gospel. You see, In Genesis 3.15, in these staggering words that we've got here, in these words, we've got the first glimmer. We've got the first kind of spark of hope, the first hint as to God's plan of salvation for his people. But before we get ahead of ourselves, before we get stuck into uh, the real bones of verse 15. We need to take a step back and we need to pay attention to the, to the setting of this verse, uh, to the context of this chapter. Now, we all know, uh, don't we, even by the, the, the title that the NIV gives to this section here, that chapter 3, what is it? It's the biblical account of the fall Of mankind. This is behind the cross of Christ, perhaps the most significant moment in the history of humanity, in the history of mankind. Because this is the point in time where sin entered the world. This is the point in time where we became inherently tarnished by wickedness and by our rebellion against God. And I suppose more specifically, if you like, verse 15, it's part of God's reaction to this um, rebellion against him. You see, after Adam and Eve disobey him, what does God do? Well, God seeks out the three transgressors, doesn't he? He seeks out Adam and Eve and the serpent and he speaks to them. He goes to them in the garden and he speaks to them one on one on an individual basis and he speaks to them very frankly indeed. And verse 15, the verse that's going to be our focus this morning, this is an account of one of these three divine speeches. You see... Before God speaks to Adam, before Almighty God speaks to Eve, verse 15 is the Holy God speaking with authority to the serpent. And he's laying upon him a curse, a curse for his part in this rebellion against God. So let's consider then, Three points from this divine address to the serpent. Three features that we have here about God's wonderful plan of salvation. And the first of those, the first of these three points is this. That this is a plan initiated by God. This is a plan initiated by God. Now, one of the uh, main news stories in Scotland over the past couple of months has been the proposed referendum on Scottish independence. You just can't get it up, can't get away from it north of the border. It's all over um, our our newspapers all over the news on the tv and in that debate both sides of the political divide are claiming that they have a plan for the benefit of the scottish people you see we have in one corner we have david cameron claiming that he wants to instigate an early date referendum to to kind of put to bed any talk of separation from the rest of the UK. And in the other corner, who do we have? We have uh, the rather large figure of Alex Salmond, claiming that he too has the best interests of the Scottish people at heart, and that he wants to instigate a referendum, but at a later date, a couple of years away. So you've got, then, both parties hoping to initiate a plan for the benefit of the people. And that's kind of what we've got in these words in verse 15, isn't it? These words are the first sign of God's plan for the benefit of the people. A plan, a plan that is to counter the effects of the fall. A plan that is entirely Initiated by God. You see, we read. We read at the start of verse fifteen that God promises to do something. Now, what is that promise? Well, he says, "I will put enmity, enmity between the serpent and the woman." Now, we all need. To get our heads round this, we need to note that this promise to insert enmity, this is a remarkable, it is a marvellous promise. Because? Well, because surely in the wake of the fall, surely we would expect God just to wash his wash his hands of humanity, wouldn't we? Adam and Eve, they've just rejected him. They have just turned away from him. We would expect God surely just to annihilate mankind or just let us at best continue in this kind of wicked working relationship that's been struck up with the serpent. But what does God do? He does does no such thing. Instead of dispensing with humanity, instead of discarding mankind, God promises to put enmity. God promises to disrupt the relationship between man and Satan. And uh, this section, it's saturated with the very reason that God does this, that God provides a plan. God sets enmity between the serpent and mankind. He he provides this plan of salvation. Why? Because of his great love. And we see that uh, love so clearly later on in the chapter, um, in the way that even after their rejection of him, that it's God, that it's God who makes the garments of skin for man, for Adam and Eve. God clothed them because God loved them. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. So what's the application of all of that? Well, it is that it pushes Everything in our lives, everything, to one side, it gets rid of all the nonsense. It gets rid of all the rubbish. And it gets down to the single most important question in your life. On what grounds, on what grounds do you think that you should be accepted by this holy and perfect Lord God Almighty, on what grounds? Do you think that you should be accepted into heaven by your own works, by your own efforts, by your own merit? Well, the fall, this chapter here, our sin, it has rendered us powerless, it has rendered us ineffectual before God. We cannot, we cannot attain salvation of ourselves. But God, what has he done? He has initiated a plan. So you must come to him and you must pray and repent of the sin that cuts to the core of our being. So this is a plan then. It is initiated by God. But secondly, verse 15 shows us that this is also a plan Involving suffering. It's a plan involving suffering. <coughs> now, we seem in Britain in recent times to be, to having been overrun by Scandinavian detective stories. They're, uh, they're everywhere. Um, I checked the other day, and apparently three of the top ten selling books in the UK are Swedish crime thrillers and they're everywhere on our uh, everywhere on our tvs um, first we had wallander i think and then there were a couple of series of something called the killing which doesn't sound great and uh, apparently then there was some danish drama on saturday nights too it seems as though we have an almost insatiable appetite for a good mystery And in some ways, and especially it would seem for liberal scholars, then there's an element of mystery to verse 15 of Genesis 3. You see, there's loads of uh, scholarly discussion about the identity of who is envisaged by the author in the term offspring. In the third line here, it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, okay? Now, if you're a liberal commentator and you think that this is just some kind of crazy, uh, mythical story about why snakes have come to crawl on their bellies, then you won't read all that much into this term. But if you read this, as a believer, and you see this mention of, of, of offspring through the lens of salvation history, then you begin to see what an incredible and what a, a mind-blowing statement that we have here. Now, I don't want to be uh, uh, too, too technical about this, but to understand this verse properly, we have to see the importance of one of the pronouns in verse 15. See, it reads literally, literally, it reads like this. I will put enmity between you and a woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Between your offspring and her offspring. Now, that last bit, her offspring, it could refer to a group of children or descendants, couldn't it? Her offspring. It could be like saying her children. But what's remarkable, what is essential to understand is that it's a singular, a singular masculine pronoun in the Hebrew. Her offspring, singular. Are you with me? Are you seeing this With me, it means that one person, not a a group of descendants, it's one person that is in view here. Her offspring, her seed, her descendants. Do you begin to see the gravity, the, the way of these words? Here God was announcing that his plan of redemption, that his plan of salvation... It involved an offspring of Eve, a descendant that was to come. The humble, the the sinless, the perfect, the incarnate Son of God. It's amazing. And as we start to get deeper into the verse, this is where we can begin to see God's plan really start to flesh out and expand because <clears throat> excuse me god says to the serpent about this offspring that the offspring will crush the head of the serpent and that the serpent will strike the heel of the offspring now that's kind of that's, that's quite dramatic language isn't it It's the picture of a battle. It's the injury of a a fight, of a conflict. He will crush your head and you, you will strike his heel. This is the offspring of Eve, Jesus Christ. And he is pictured in battle with the wicked, evil serpent. And we see very clearly in the last line of the verse, that God predicts that Satan, that at some point, that Satan will strike the heel of this offspring. That at some point throughout history, that Satan will inflict injury upon Jesus Christ. And surely, if you're a believer here, if you're a Christian, surely... What instantly springs to mind at this point is the image of an exhausted, of a a weary, of a thirsty, of a beaten and battered man hanging and dying on a cross. And you, Satan, you will strike his heel. You see, folks, There was a very, very real physical suffering involved in this plan of salvation. It's not a myth. Christ was tortured and Christ was flogged to counter these devastating effects of the fall. Jesus, he had to endure agonizing physical pain. But there wasn't just physical suffering was there? There was also a spiritual, a spiritual element to Christ's suffering too. Now I'm sure we're all biblically literate people. And when I say Second Corinthians five twenty one, I'm sure many of us know it. These words here God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. What a terrible spiritual burden that was. This innocent, innocent lamb of God voluntarily enduring the most dreadful spiritual distress. So yeah, okay friends, okay he did suffer physically but even more so Jesus suffered and he did so spiritually. So given that, given that rather dreadful picture, surely we've got to kind of step back and we've got to ask ourselves some pretty serious questions indeed. Have we, for example, have we, as we go about our daily lives, have we lost sight of just what Jesus went through in order to win salvation for us, to win salvation for his people. There was a man who died for you. There was a man who was tortured and who was killed because he loved you so much. Verse 15, you will strike his heel. This was a plan involving suffering. So we come to the third and the final point of this morning's sermon. The third point in this examination of verse 15. And we see here that this is a plan inevitably culminating in victory. It is a plan inevitably culminating in victory. And we see that in God's promise here, that the offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Now, I read a a, a couple of weeks ago that the, uh, the actor Stephen Fry and the director Peter Jackson of uh, Lord of the Rings fame. They are, they're, they're collaborating on a remake of a film, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sure that quite a few of us know, it's the 1950s epic, The uh, the, the Dam Busters. Now, I sat and watched that film as I was a kid, and I absolutely loved it. I remember um, watching on the edge of my seat when the British planes... Uh, dropped the bouncing bomb and I remember being devastated when the first one, it missed its target and it bounced and it just it went straight into the water. And then I remember a great sense of elation, I suppose it was, as a wee boy watching this, when eventually a bomb was dropped and it bounced a couple of times and then it hit the dam, causing chaos and a huge amount of, of damage. Now you see the bombs that were dropped, they were exactly the same type of bomb, but what was important was where exactly they hit. And that illustrates for us what's happening in Genesis 315, because you see what's of crucial importance here is the location Of the blows that were struck. We learn, don't we, that the serpent's blow. Where does the serpent's blow hit? It hits to the heel of the offspring. Whereas the offspring's blow, it hits at the head of the serpent. Now, it's not not about the fact that this is translated. One blow is translated as a strike, whereas the other blow is translated as a crush. That's not what this is about. Those are exactly the same words. Just like the dam, just like the bomb. Those are exactly the same words in the Hebrew. Now, what is important is that where Satan can only injure the heel of Christ, God promises that the offspring, that Jesus Christ, that he will inflict a deadly he will inflict a fatal and decisive blow to the head of the serpent. This is a plan culminating, inevitably culminating, in Christ's victory over Satan. And if we look at the life and we look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can see clearly just How this comes about, this victory. You see, it's a victory that that builds up throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. He's in combat with Satan all throughout his time on earth, isn't he? He's tempted by the devil. He interacts with and he frees the demon-possessed. He battles with evil... To the extent that his disciples can, can exclaim in Luke's gospel, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then, folks, then we get to the climax of all of this. We get to the, to the, to the decisive moment. We get to the apex of God's great plan of grace. You see, we see at Calvary, we see at the cross, Christ claimed this victory once and for all. It was the cross where Jesus defeated Satan. It was as the offspring seemed at his weakest that Christ dealt this fatal blow. It is the cross. Friends, it is the cross that is the linchpin in God's great plan of redemption. It is the cross that provides all the victory. But what, I hear you ask, what impact should this victory over Satan have in our lives. How, as you sit there today, as we gather like this, how does this actually affect you and me? Well, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then this victory of a risen Christ over Satan, this success over sin, it should, it should infuse everything that you are and it should permeate everything that you do. Friends, that you have a triumphant, a triumphant saviour should firstly inform your worship of him. Surely, come on, surely when we see this plan that God has formed, a plan to win us back from sin. Surely when we see the, 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 the sheer beauty of that, that our reaction must be just to fall at his throne, to bow in worship and sheer adoration of him. But, not only that, that we have a triumphant saviour, Should also make us, it should make us go out with confidence in evangelism. We have to tell the world that the only way of reconciliation to a holy God is through this plan. There is no other way. We must go out and we must remember that we do so, we don't go out by ourselves we go out in the power of a risen and a victorious God. And so, as we close this morning, as we draw all of this to a conclusion, surely, folks, we see the importance of this plan. And especially so for anyone here in this room who has not repented And believed for anyone here who is not in Christ. You see, the fall of man, it had left you without hope. You had nothing. You had nowhere to turn. And you had no lifelines left. Against that kind of scary, that frightening backdrop, the God of love provided a plan to save you from your sin. And all you need to is pray and ask him to forgive you for your sin. I urge you, I urge you to do that, to pray, to pray to him. And then you too will experience this this tremendous joy that comes in sharing in the victory over sin. That Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, that he has won. He has won and he has delivered for his people. Oh, how we must praise God for this first glimpse of his wonderful and his glorious plan of salvation. Let's pray.